The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the latest episode of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Very excited to have you join us today. For the last couple of weeks, we've really been focusing on uh, students who have gotten their decisions, who are waiting for their decisions. Uh, There's lots of great stuff in the archives for those of you who are trying to decide where to go to college now that you've gotten in. Uh, Maybe for those of you who are looking for some advice on how to handle wait lists, um, some really good advice about how to look at your financial aid award and really understand the different components and maybe even negotiate additional money. There's a great segment on that. So I highly recommend that you all check out the archives. Today we are going to be talking a little bit about um, what to do now if you've just gotten in, but we're also going to be talking a lot about, uh, or to those of you who maybe are going to be applying in the fall or who are going to be applying in a couple of years from now. And um, one thing that we are going to talk about in our second segment is student debt, college loans, how much money to consider taking out, um, questions like that. Like I say, those of you who are um, getting ready to go to school in the fall may be very interested to learn more about that. We're also going to be talking about all of those early programs. So those of you who are going to be applying in the fall might be wondering, you know, well, what is early decision and how is that different from early action? And what about rolling admissions? And do I need to apply early? And if so, when do I need to be ready to do that? We're going to really dig into those early options that are out there. There are a lot of them, and it can be a little difficult to make sense of uh, what you're locking yourself into sometimes with those early programs. Uh, and then at the end of the show, as we always do, we're going to be taking your questions. We'd love to take your questions on the air. So give us a call at 866. Let me find my number here. Um, you want to give us a call at 866-472-5788. We'd love to take your calls. But Before we get to any of that, we're actually going to talk about the Common App and the new prompts that just came out, um, I guess it was last week. And I have with me today is my current colleague and former Bennington and Barnard Senior Admissions Officer, Elise Krantz. Welcome, Elise. Thank you, Beth. So I'm thrilled to have you here for a couple of reasons. One of the big ones is that, for those of you who are not familiar with our website, um, Elise writes a fabulous blog every year. Um, Actually, it winds up being a multi, 
uh, multi-blog, we many different um, blogs on a similar issue, which is the Common App, and she's really our Common App expert, and she writes every year about what's changed, what's new, what to pay attention to in different segments. Um, so it's great to have her here from that perspective, but also because uh, she, like I, work with a, a lot of students every year who are writing essays for their college applications, and most of the students that we work with are going to apply to at least one school that accept the Common App uh, as their primary application, and so we'll often be working from these prompts. Um, so I guess my first question for you, Elise, is the new prompts were just released uh, did anything? Did everything change? Are some things the same? What's new? What's different? Okay. So last year, there were five questions that students could respond to, and they only need to pick just one of them. Um, the first question was what I called the background essay, where students could write about a story that is important to who they are. The second essay, which I call the failure essay, asked students to write about a failure that they experienced and how it affected them. The third essay, which is called, I like to call the idea essay, which is when students are asked to write about a time when they challenged a belief or an idea, and if they would make that decision again in the future. The fourth essay, which was really quite popular with a lot of students, is the content essay or the happy place essay, which is when students could describe a place where they feel perfectly content. And the fifth choice from last year was when students could write about the transition essay. So this is talking about uh, marking the transition from childhood to adulthood. So this year's essay prompts, which were just released, as you mentioned, last week, it's just been announced, and students can get to work on those whenever they would like. Um, two of the questions were completely the same, have not changed at all. That was the idea essay and mm -hmm. the transition essay. Uh, two of the questions had very minor changes, and one question was completely removed and replaced with an alternate. Gotcha. So let's talk about the ones that had minor changes. So the, the first one that had minor changes was that very first prompt that a lot of my students end up responding to, um, which is the background or the, the story as you, as you shared. What changed about that? Right. So the, the original wording asked students to write about a background or a story that was central to their identity. And a lot of students were choosing to write about just important pieces of their lives, whether it was the fact that they're devoted to their key club in school or the fact that they're really fascinated about biology. Some students took the, the background idea a bit literally and wrote about their ethnic or religious or cultural backgrounds. And what the Common App did this time around, which I think was really wise, was they changed the wording to include the language, um, if you have a background, identity, interest, or talent that is meaningful, Please write about that. So this, I think, gives students the go-ahead, the green light, to really write about anything that they want yep. to write about, something important to them. Right. I mean, to me, this prompt is really akin to choose your own topic, which used to be a prompt on the Common App. And yeah. I, I generally will say to students, this is really the prompt you choose if what you write your essay about doesn't really fit any of the others. Then we always have this one to fall back on. Absolutely. I would say that this first prompt, 
at least half of the essays that I read last year when working with students, they chose this prompt. It's a very easy prompt to fit into any topic, as you mentioned. Exactly. So another one that changed was the second essay, as you so aptly put it, the failure essay. And many times the drafts I used to read of these essays sort of felt like failures to me. Um, But what's (laughs) new about this one this year? So the previous prompt asked students to recount uh, an incident of failure and how it affected them and what did you learn. This year's prompt added one additional sentence, which is, the lessons we take from failure can be fundamental to later success. So I think that's really helping students direct their essay to not focus just on that failure portion, but more about the success that comes afterwards. You know, the admissions officers don't want to just hear about the negative experience that you, that you had, but more what did you learn from it? What did you take from it to, to help you adjust and be more successful in the future? Exactly. I mean, what I always tell my students is if you're going to choose that prompt, I want to read maybe a quarter of the essay is about your failure, maybe a third, uh, and then the rest is all about the success and how you have, uh, what you've learned from it, what you've taken away from it. So I agree. I think that's a really, really great addition um, to that particular prompt and an important addition mm-hmm. to it. Uh, hopefully it'll be helpful to students out there. So now let's get to the prompt that went away. Uh, and that was about the place where you feel mo- most content. I'm actually a little sad to see that go because I did have students write some really thoughtful essays in response to that. Um, but I do know that there were a lot of people who read a lot of essays that felt that they weren't particularly thoughtful responses. So what's replacing that and, and what do you think about the change? Well, it's interesting. The, the, in addition to releasing these common application prompts, the Common Application Group also recently completed a survey where they were polling not only college admissions officers who use the Common Application, but also guidance counselors, students, parents, independent counselors. And one of the questions that they asked was about how easy it is for students to convey their analytical ability and their intellectual curiosity in the essays. And many, one-third of respondents to this Common App survey felt that it was hard for students to convey those particular pieces. So this new prompt, the new fourth prompt, asks students about solving a problem. So students can either write about a problem that they have already solved or a problem that they would like to solve. And it's really meant to be an opportunity for students to take an intellectual risk, to show their analytical side, and to give colleges more of what they're looking for from that academic standpoint. And I think it's an interesting new choice, and I'm intrigued to see what's going to happen with this. I do think I'm a little nervous that it's going to lead to the kinds of things that I've seen in the past where the student decides, um, the problem I'd like to solve is world hunger or world Mm -hmm. peace. And, you know, they get themselves a little too overblown and grandiose. And so as I think about this and working with students on this prompt, one of the things that I'm going to really be encouraging is to try to stick to something in which you've already maybe accomplished something or you're already working towards accomplishing something. And the larger goal might be world hung- ending world hunger or achieving world peace. But um, I always think it's a good idea to stay smaller rather than get yourself too over your head where it's hard to imagine that you could actually do it. Um, anyway, 
that's my particular thought on that new one. I agree, and I don't think that this prompt will be nearly as popular as was last year's fourth prompt. I think this is going to be harder for students because not every student has had a, the opportunity to solve a big problem, and not many students are necessarily thinking forward about solving a big problem. So I think that prompt number one, my guess is, is will become even more popular than it has in the past, simply because it can be that catch-all for nearly any topic that a student wishes to write about. Yeah, I would agree. So there were a couple of other changes um, that you had noted um, some things about editing the essay. Can you talk us through those? Oh, sure. So the Common Application made, uh, as part of their announcement with the new essay prompts, they did give us little teasers about what to expect for the the revised 2015-2016 Common Application. There isn't a whole lot of information about it, but it does seem like there's two very interesting pieces that students may want to be aware about. The first is that in years past, uh, students had, were not able to edit the essay unlimited number of times. If they wanted to send a particular essay to, let's say, their top choice schools, and then they realized there was a mistake and they had to change it and make another version, they were only allowed to do that a total number of two times, two changes, yeah. and then they were locked out of the essay. This year, it appears that students could make as many changes to that essay as possible. Um, Common App doesn't want students to personalize the essay for every school that a student applies to. That kind of defeats the purpose of what the Common App is all about. But it does, I think, give students a little more flexibility in tailoring pieces of that essay for maybe a certain major they're applying to for a certain type of school. The other big change that was announced um, is that the Common Application is inviting colleges and universities that may not require an essay to be part of the Common App membership, meaning that a, a university or college that has zero essay requirements can now use the Common Application and that a student can fill out that Common App and not have to submit any essay whatsoever before they hit submit, which is new. Every school previously on the Common App required at least that one personal statement, but that will be a change this year. Right, and that's an exciting and interesting one, and it'll be interesting to see how that plays out with some colleges perhaps not requiring an essay that previously had been. So I'm interested to see that. We're we're close to the end of our time, but I did want to ask you one more question, and because I thought you wrote about this in a really interesting way in the blog that you wrote, which you can find on our website www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting in, but. Um, any advice for students on how to use these prompts in terms of writing their essays? It's, I, we, I was thinking about brainstorming essay topics recently because that's something that I'm going to be doing soon with a lot of the students that I'm working with. And I know that some folks turn to the essay prompts first and then try to think of answers that will fit into those questions. And that might work really well for some students who need that concrete question in front of them that they can then pose an answer to. Um, but I find that what's more important than the question you're choosing to answer, at least from the admissions perspective, you know, colleges are more, more curious and more interested in what you have to say. They're, they're curious about the content of that essay, not did you choose number one or number four. Um, when I was an admissions officer, I don't ever think I ever really looked at that question of, you know, what number are they choosing? What's the, mm -hmm. what's, what prompt did they select? It, it was all about the essay. And so I would recommend that, you know, regardless of what any, you know, 
whatever these changes are and whatever changes may, may come in the future with these essays is that students really need to think first and foremost about what it is that they want to tell colleges. What story do they want to share? And then once they've identified that uh, memorable or important piece of their lives, then they can find an essay prompt, ideally, that will fit nicely along with it. Exactly. And as we've already said, prompt number one will always be your choice if you can't make the others work. Uh, Elise, exactly. thank, you, thank you so much for being here today. I think there's some really great advice here, uh, and I appreciate your time. Um, and then uh, we're going to go to break here, but after the break, Beth Feinberg-Keenan is going to be on, and she's going to be talking about how much loan uh, debt you really want to take on when you are heading off to college. So stay tuned. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Want to help make our world a better place, but not sure where to start? Tune into Better Worldians Radio with the creators of the social game on Facebook called A Better World. Join hosts Ray, Mary Sue, and Gregory Hansel, who will inspire you to make a big difference in small ways. They'll speak to experts, authors, volunteers, and everyday people who are changing the world daily. Better Worldians Radio is heard live every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, In this segment, we're going to be talking about how much loan or how much debt uh, parents and students both can and should take out uh, to pay for college. And with me to talk us through that is Beth Feinberg-Keenan, who's a former Northeastern financial aid officer. Welcome, Beth. How are you? Good. Thanks so much, Beth, for having me. 
Absolutely. I appreciate you coming on because as my listeners know, this is not my area of expertise and I'm always happy to have actual experts on to talk about things from a, um, an expert perspective, for lack of a better word. As I understand it, student loan debt right now is approaching one billion. It may one trillion. It may actually be higher than that. Uh, so this is definitely a real issue. And so, even though it can be really tempting, especially if you get into the school of your dreams, to think, oh, sure, you know, I can take out as many loans as people will give me, and I'll worry about it when I graduate. Um, we've probably all seen those articles about students who are currently, you know, they've graduated and now they're, they've got $160,000 or more um, in debt that they have to pay back. And that's just, in my opinion, not really a great way to start out your professional working life. Um, so let's talk a little bit about that. But before we get into the how much someone should take, let's talk a little more about um, the nuts and bolts of it. And so my first question for you really is what loans can students take out under their own signature? And, and that's a great place to start, Beth, and we're talking about student loans. And the primary student loans that students can really take out under their own signature are the direct subsidized and unsubsidized student loans. And those are primarily the, the, the most popular uh, pure student loans that students can take out. And the first part to doing that is, you know, completing the free application for federal student aid. Now, there's also certain limitations in how much students can borrow. So you mentioned, like, that 160, you know, that students are graduating with. They can't do that through the federal loan program, especially for undergraduate degrees. College freshmen can't borrow any more than $5,500 under their own signature, and sophomores $6,500 and $7,500 each for the junior and senior year. So as you can see, there are certain limitations uh, with the federal loan programs that students are restricted by um, when they're taking out student loans. And typically, these loans are going to show up on their financial aid packages uh, when they're receiving these awards. So if they don't, what if you don't get those awards as part of your, if you don't get a loan as part of your package, can, is there... A, you know, so if that wasn't included, would it ever not be included in your package, I guess is my question. Would you ever be limited to less than what the federal government allows you to take out under your own signature? So that's a great question. Actually, I was having that conversation with a family yesterday that didn't have the full, you know, $5,500 for, you know, their, their entering freshmen. And there were a couple different situations. One of the schools had offered them a very generous scholarship, and they didn't have the full eligibility for that $5,500 because it would exceed the cost of attendance. Mm-hmm. Other schools have policies that they don't automatically package students with above a certain dollar amount. That might just be the, the $3,500 uh, maximum subsidized loan, or that might be $2,000, whatever the school has set as guidelines. But if the family feels that they need that additional money that they don't have the resources to cover those additional costs, there's nothing preventing the family from reaching back out to the financial aid office to ask, can we have that additional money up to you know the $5,500 or the cap for that academic year? And the schools shouldn't necessarily de- deny that for, for that family. Right, because it's not coming out of the school's pocket and I could see a situation where you need to fly back and forth. That that money that you need exceeds the cost of attending the school, but that doesn't mean you don't need the money to pay for those travel costs. 
Correct. And if you're in that situation, Beth, and you have those additional travel costs that aren't calculated into the cost of attendance, mm-hmm. you'd want to work with the financial aid office also for them to increase that cost of attendance for the year to, number one, account for those costs, and also, secondly, allow the family to take out those additional, or the student to take out those additional um, federal loans in their name. because. Yes. The subsidized and unsubsidized Stafford loans are really the best loans for students to get before they look at any other loan option outside and beyond those federal loan programs. Okay. So in your opinion, what's a good rule of thumb in terms of how much students should plan to borrow? Well, the first thing that I always like to remind families when they're looking at you know, how much debt is too much debt is that the four years that students are taking out the tw- the direct, well, the federal student loans, they're already going to have $27,000 under, you know, under their own signature. Mm-hmm. And that's going to equate to about $300 a month in monthly loan payments when they enter into repayment. But, you know, when they look at saying, okay, that's not enough, you know, a good rule of thumb is not to exceed the amount that they're going to earn in their first year of their career. And if they're going to exceed that amount and get somewhere upwards of, 100, 150, 160, they need to make sure that they have a plan who's going to pay back that loan. Is mm-hmm. it the student's responsibility? Is it the parent's responsibility? Is it a shared responsibility between you know, both parent and student? Because I think, you know, personally, I don't know how I would react as a student graduating with $160,000 in debt and where I'd start to you know, find that money to pay for that alone. Yeah, and certainly at the best case scenario, you're locked into if you've if you've majored in something that leads to a quite high paying career. God forbid you don't like that career because you're going to need that money to pay off all those loans, which is you know another another scary thing. It really cuts down on the freedom and the things that you can choose to do if you are under too much debt. Going back Definitely. to the, Yeah, and going back to the question of the loans that we were talking about earlier, we know how much the limit is in terms of those subsidized and unsubsidized loans. What about private loans? Are students able to take those out without someone co-signing? You know, again, I look back at, you know, the trends in basically financial aid, and today with the current state of the economy and the more stringent criteria that lenders have in terms of approving these private loans, students aren't really able to borrow these private loans under their own signatures. They, private lenders are going to look at an income of about $12,000, upwards of $18,000 for the past three years. They may look at a credit history for the past three years. And these are things that your typical 18-year-old, they're not going to have that type of income. They're yep. not necessarily going to have an established credit history for the past three years that they're going to need somebody who has who has, you know, an income as well as a strong credit history to co-sign for them to help them borrow those loans. Right. So, so in general, if you're going to be looking for other private loans, you're going to need a parent or somebody else who's willing to co-sign with you. Exactly. Somebody who's willing to share that responsibility with you as the borrower, you know, to repay those loans, to take on that ownership of that additional debt that you're taking on. And it's really important to stress here that co-signing for a loan is the same as basically taking out a loan yourself because if the person who you co-signed for defaults and doesn't make their payments or in other ways really just kind of doesn't hold up their end of the bargain, you're the one who's 
going to have to pay in their in, in in instead of them because the bank doesn't really care. They just want their money. You're absolutely correct. I, you know, when I talk to families all the time, that's something that I explain to them. You know, to make sure that they understand that they're equally responsible. If their student their, that borrowers late on making a payment, it's going to impact their credit just as yeah. much as it impact that of the borrower. So another rule of thumb in terms of borrowing is, is when they're looking at you know, what they're going to borrow for the first year, multiply that by the four years. Mm-hmm. And if this is the first child going to college, if you have two, two children, three children, you want to make sure that you have the resources for all of your kids and that you can help all of them and kind of what's your breaking point. Yep. And actually, more on that whole idea of a cosign loan, what if you cosign and you say to your child, you know, I'll cosign for these loans, but as soon as you have a job and you're making these payments, I want to be off of this loan. Can you get off of a cosign loan? There are certain times when you can get off of a cosign loan, but again, going back, you know, to the beginning, when you're cosigning a loan, you're taking on that risk along with the borrower. So... There are cosigner release options that a number of the different private loan companies offer to the borrower, but the borrower is the one who has to initiate that. There are typically certain rules and regulations that are going to initiate that, something along the lines of that they have to make 12, month, 12, on, month, sorry, 12 on time monthly payments. Some of them are upwards of 36 on-time monthly payments or 48 on, you know, on-time payments. But at that point in time, in addition to successfully repaying the loan back, the borrower also has to prove that they have an income, their credit history uh, for the past couple of years to show that they can actually repay that loan back. And what's going to happen is, is the, lend- the lender is going to pay off this loan with the new loan that's not co-signed, Mm-hmm. And then the borrower also has to make sure that they're not delinquent or late during that period of time that this is all being done because that could also negate this this, this process happening. Right. Tip, typically, lenders are going to have some type of application that's going to have to be completed. So they're going to want to check with the specific lender that they've borrowed through to see what's the application, what's the time frame, what supporting documentation do they need to provide with that application uh, in order to get that cosigner released. Right. So it's, it's kind of like refinancing your mortgage, I guess, or, you know, that's something that I did um, when I transferred ownership of my house to my ex-husband is we refinanced, my name came off the loan, and he owned the loan. But we both had to be financially in a position to make that possible. It's going to be the same thing with these um, loans that you're co-signing for. And some students get a little lost. They're not always ready to start working right away. So I think, you know, you probably should assume if you're going to co-sign for a loan that you're going to be on there for the length of the loan. Um, so- and depending on how much you borrowed, you could also be on the hook also for paying back part of that loan, too, for a good, you know, good period of time, depending on how much your, your student's making when they graduate. Exactly. So I think this has been super helpful, Beth. I really appreciate it. And I know you're going to stick around and um, answer questions with me at the Q&A section. So for those of you listening who have more questions around this whole idea of taking out loans, either to pay for your own education or to help your child pay for his or her education, um, send in your questions, give us a call. We're going to be 
um, back after the break to talk about early programs. But like I said, Beth's going to stick around and join us later on, and we will take more of your admissions and finance-related questions at that point. So thanks very much, Beth. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Museums are great places to work and wonderful places to visit. But are they essential? How can we improve our museum practice so that museums remain vital and essential players in society? Listen for Museum Life with host Carol Bossert where each week we'll discuss timely and topical issues of concern to the museum community. Museum Life can be heard live every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everybody. I heard somebody, or I don't know if I heard somebody say it or if a writer wrote it in an article that I read, but about a year or two ago, I saw or heard the line, regular decision is dead. And for those of you who don't live in this world of admissions the way that we do, you might be wondering, I don't know what regular decision is and what does it mean that it's dead? Uh, I'm not sure that that's actually true, but... Um, regular decision is the the decision offering or the decision deadline that many schools in this country have, and it's usually a deadline somewhere around January 1, February 1, maybe even March 1st, um, and it's the deadline by which all applications for admission are due. What has happened over the past few years 
for many years. I mean, I applied to my alma mater under their early decision program. So we're going back a ways there, although I'm not going to say how far back. Um, But what has become more and more popular over the past few years are early admission programs that allow students to get their applications in a little bit earlier than that regular decision deadline. And in many cases, and in fact, most cases, to get an answer uh, earlier than that deadline or earlier than you would hear if you applied by the regular decision deadline. What has also happened as schools have rolled out different programs is that there have become a large number of early options for families. And with me today, I have Tova Tolman, who is a colleague here at College Coach and who's a former senior admissions officer at Barnard, at Fordham, and at Montclair State. So she has seen a number of different types of offerings, and she also was a reader at Columbia. So um, welcome, Tova, and thanks for joining us. So... I'm not sure I agree with the idea that regular decision is dead, but what I will say is that all of the students that I work with, or almost all of them, do some form of an early application somewhere. And um, I wanted to today to have you come on and talk to us and kind of go through what the different options are. So why don't we start with the one that, for me, tends to raise the most questions from families and I think is the one that's the most important to understand because it is binding, and that's early decision. So what exactly is early decision? Uh, Sure, and and I would agree. I think it does raise a lot of questions because it's the scariest one. Binding means you have made a commitment, and basically it's that. It's your way of telling the school, I have fallen in love. I've done my research early. I know this is where I want to be. No matter who else would potentially offer me admission, no matter who else would potentially offer me a scholarship, this is where I want to be, and if accepted, I will attend. And uh, it's it's sometimes hard for a student to do their research early. Uh, But basically, early decision is that commitment. And uh, if admitted, you will attend that school. Right. And withdraw all other applications. That's a very key point there, Beth. I'm glad you mentioned that. You must. It's a part of the commitment that the student signs. And often these days, a lot of schools have not only the student sign, but the parents and the guidance counselor as well. Uh, they sign a full agreement say, stating that not only will I attend, if I've already submitted any applications to other schools, I will withdraw them if admitted or if admitted to your school and not wait to see even if I get into that other school. Right. And a big question that I get from families is, well, how enforceable is that? And can't we still take a shot at some other schools, even if we do get into early decision? And, uh, you know, my policy on that is absolutely not. But I'd love to get your take on the whole question of how enforceable it is and, and what does it mean to make that commitment, really? Sure. It's a pretty serious, not only ethical and moral commitment, but some might say legal contract. There have been times where I've seen a student try and play that game, and boy, did that backfire, where the offer of admission was not only rescinded from the initial early decision school, that early decision school then would contact the other school, and that student would then find themselves with no offer of admission from either school. Yes. It is a very dangerous game to play. I highly discourage, dissuade anybody out there from playing it. It doesn't get you anything. And in the end, it could really, really um, 
hurt you quite a bit. You could lose a lot. I, yeah. I would say there's, there's one exception, and that is schools are not in the game of trying to bankrupt people. So if you apply yeah. early decision and you don't, and you get in, but the financial aid package that the school puts together is, in the family's opinion, not adequate and would really put them under great financial strain, then they, they generally will release you from the commitment. I do think it's important to note that at virtually all of the schools that offer early decision, if you're released from the commitment, that also means you're released from the a- applicant pool. So they take away, in essence, that acceptance and that's no longer going to be an option for you. And that's a good point to make. Students often ask what else happens if they're not admitted. Uh, could, could there be any other outcomes? And typically what I've seen at the schools that I've worked at and, and what's popular out there, if not admitted, a uh, student could be denied, and that would be their decision for the year. Often students ask that they reapply just a month later, and the answer is no. If denied, that's your decision for the year. Or sometimes you could be deferred to the mm-hmm. regular decision pool, meaning we can't accept you at this time. We need to see a little bit more about what the rest of the applicants look like, and we will re-review your application later on with the regular decision pool. And it's important to note that if that happens, the student is also released from the binding commitment. So they're no longer yes. required to attend if admitted later on. Exactly. And at, I know at Penn, the students who applied early and were deferred were admitted at about the same rate as students who applied in the regular decision applicant pool. So it's not a um, negative to be deferred. It's not a positive. It's certainly not the decision that you were hoping for, but it isn't right. the end of the road. They don't, um, they're not deferring you just to let you down more gently in most cases. Um, in most only, cases, that's definitely true. Exactly. There are definitely some, sometimes when you are doing that, but um, in most cases that they really do want to consider you in the regular pool. One last thing before we move off of early decision, I just wanted to mention for the listeners out there is that there are some schools that also offer early decision two, which in essence is a second round of early decision. And that is for maybe the student who fell in love with two schools Um, one a little bit more than the other, and they applied to their favorite option in the first round of early decision. And then the second choice, let's say they didn't get in or they got deferred by the first choice, um, and if the second choice offered early decision to, they might then submit an application to that school. Um, Maybe they weren't quite ready to commit, but they didn't get started on their school visits until later. They were waiting on some new testing or some stronger grades. So they didn't feel like their application was going to be as strong as it could be if they applied in that early decision round, in that initial round. Um, that's another time where early decision two could be a good option. It's often the deadline for early decision two is generally um, – the regular decision deadline, so it's often one and the same, and then you get an answer a couple of, maybe a month before everybody else does. And we should note that the early decision deadline is usually somewhere around November 1st, November 15th. There are a few schools I'm I'm starting to see now with early programs with deadlines in mid-October, but um, not usually for early decision. All right, so enough about early decision and the binding stuff. There are still options for those students who are looking for something that is non-binding. So can you talk us through a little bit about priority admissions and early action? Sure. 
And as you said, these are the options for the students who are still ready to go but aren't quite ready to make the commitment. Mm-hmm. Priority deadlines are usually, from what I've seen, some sort of special set of circumstances. It's the school needing extra time to review your application. So they have an earlier deadline, and there's something that comes along with it, perhaps. Maybe there's some special consideration given for uh, scholarships, perhaps they advertise. If you apply by this priority deadline, then you will be considered for our merit scholarships. The most common cases I've seen for schools using the term priority deadlines are often with art applications. Maybe they have some audition or interview requirement and they need extra time to evaluate those additional components. Typically, you're just applying by an earlier deadline, but quite often there's no promise of any early notification. Mm-hmm. Now, that's different, though, from early action. Uh, early action is, is really very similar to early decision with the big important difference of no binding commitment. So early action has the same timeline. Most often when schools are using that terminology, you're applying by November 1, November 15, or as you said, some schools even earlier. Uh, you hear your decision early. The same three outcomes are possible. You could be admitted, you could be denied, or perhaps you could be deferred. But you still will have until May 1st to decide what you'd like to do with that offer of admission. And I think a good thing to point out here, too, is that um, not all schools offer all of these different programs. You might find some schools that do early decision and early action. Uh, You could find a school that just does early decision. There might be a school that does both early decision and early decision, too. Uh, They might do early action. uh, And so they may, um, you know, notify by a certain date for some schools. And so there are a lot of different moving pieces here that I, I think, Bottom line, I would really encourage people to be going to the school's websites and really studying what their early policies are because it is definitely not a one-size-fits-all approach. Um, And then to to touch on what you were saying with early action and the fact that it's non-binding, there are schools out there that offer early action. It's always non-binding when you use that. That phrase, early action, implies non-binding. However, there are schools that have... Um, what some call restrictive early action and what other others call single choice early action where they have rules around where else you may apply in the early round. So a good example would be both Boston College and Georgetown University have a policy of restrictive early action that prevents students who are applying to them under the early action program from also applying to a school that offers early decision. Because in essence, what they're saying is, hey, we're going to give you this consideration in the early round, we're going to give you an early answer, but we don't want you to have committed to somebody else um, before you even hear from us. So if you get into your early decision school, you know you're going to have to go there, basically. Uh, Okay, so last of the early options, and we're just about going to have enough time to cover this last one, and that's rolling admission. So how does that work, and what's different about that? We may have lost Tova. Well, while we're waiting for her to come back, I did want to talk a little bit about, and she'll talk to us about rolling admissions when she gets back, but I did want to talk about 
who is a bad candidate for an early program? Because while it's really appealing to get an answer early and it can be really interesting um, or exciting to people to get all their applications out and, and done early and kind of be done with the process, there are some students for whom that's not really a great choice. Uh, and that is... Um, the students who maybe uh, had a weaker record and are kind of building towards better grades and maybe they would really benefit from having a full semester's worth of grades in that um, in that first semester of senior year. Maybe they started taking their standardized testing late or um, they're retaking it because their scores aren't quite where they know the school is going to want them to be. Uh, and so they're not necessarily going to be putting their best foot forward in the early round. Uh, so if that describes you or your student, I would really proceed with caution. It really is not, as we've been saying about these all along, it's not a one-size-fits-all approach. And so you do have to be careful and make sure that you really are a strong candidate for if you're going to go and apply in that early round. Uh, okay, Tova, you're back with us. Rolling admissions. Yes. What can you tell us? I'm so sorry. Uh, one of the schools I worked at, Montclair State, had rolling admissions. And basically, it's kind of what it sounds like. When they get your application, after a certain date comes, either perhaps they're ready to start reviewing applications or maybe they wait for a critical mass to uh, accumulate. At that point, they begin reviewing your application and they essentially will notify students on a first-come, first-served basis and uh, space might fill up. So the earlier you get your application in, the greater consideration you'll be given, perhaps not only space in the class for admission, but potentially also scholarship dollars. Once they're gone, they might be gone. Now, right. sometimes they have a, a final deadline. you got to get it in by this certain date. And then if space remains, they will continue to review applications through the end of the season, through maybe up until the start of classes. Uh, it really will depend on the school. But the really takeaway message for any sort of rolling decision is the earlier the better for full consideration. Absolutely. Tova, thank you so much for being here. Uh, when we come back from the break, uh, Beth and I are going to be taking your admissions and college finance questions. You can always call us at 866-472-5788. We'll be right back. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. 
the Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone, and thanks for sticking around through the Q&A portion. We did get a few questions in related to the segment that Beth and I did a little earlier on taking out loans to pay for school. And Beth, this one is fairly relevant to what we were just talking about. And that is, how long does my child have to repay their loans? That's a great question. So the federal loans that we started talking about earlier, the direct um, direct subsidized and unsubsidized loan, Mm -hmm. once they graduate and enter into repayment, standard repayment is 10 years. So 120 months. But if your children happen to have more than thirty thirty sorry $30,000 more in federal debt with one servicer, they can also look at entering into an extended repayment plan, which will give them up to 25 years to repay their loan. So if they don't have $30,000 and that 10 years isn't enough, what else can they do? There's also uh, loan consolidation, which is a big topic that a lot of you know students look at refinancing their loans and extending their repayment anywhere between 15 years and 30 years, and that's really dependent upon the size of their education debt. So, again, those really deal with just the federal loan programs. We talked about the private loan programs, too, that students could take out, and private loan repayment terms can vary. So when you're looking at taking out a private loan, it's so important to understand what is that repayment term. Is it 10 years? Is it 15 years? Is it 20 years? And if that's the term and that monthly payment doesn't work for the student or for the family, what are the options that you have available with that lender? And you really have to contact that lender directly to find out if they have any type of flexibility with you know, renegotiating or looking at other repayment terms on those private loans. Okay, great. Thank you. We had a question come in related to the segment that I was just doing with Tova, and it came from a mom who shared that her daughter had applied to an early decision school and was um, surprised to learn after the fact that the only option there was to either be accepted or to be denied. There was no deferral. And they had sort of hoped if she wasn't admitted that she would be deferred and was curious if that was a bad call and if they should have waited to regular decision. And my general advice on that is that if you were denied in early, you likely would have been denied in regular. So if they read the application and they feel like, gee, you know, if there was better testing or if the grades were just a little bit stronger, this is an applicant we really like and we could admit. And, um, you know, that, that might be a case where at a school that they defer, they would go ahead and defer. But generally speaking, if they're denying you in the early round, it's because there wasn't anything new that could have come in that would make a difference, that would make them change their minds about that. And so for that reason... Um, I think, you know, if you're a deny in, in early, you're most likely the same decision would have come in regular. 
Uh, okay, we have time for one last question, Beth, and that came in around from a parent who was wondering, they were denied a parent loan. What are, do they have any other options? They do, and there's really actually four different options that they can look at. The first is if there's another parent who can apply for the loan, have that other parent apply for the, you know, see if they can get approved. They can also seek a credit appeal to see if, um, you know, maybe there's an extenuating circumstance related to the adverse credit history um, or credit, you know, report that they've either cleared up or something was, you know, misinformation had been reported that they can explain. The other option that they have, too, is they could come back with an endorser. So just like we talked about a co-signer for a private student loan, a parent can have a co-signer, so another individual without adverse credit history, being an endorser or a co-signer on their PLUS loan. So again, this person is taking responsibility that if the parent or you know the borrower can't pay back the loan, that they're going to pay back the loan. And the last option is that you know they're not going to do any of these three things. They're not going to try to get that you know that plus loan. So they're going to seek out the additional unsubsidized Stafford loan for their student. So students whose parents are denied a plus loan and they don't appeal the situation, don't go back to apply for that plus loan. Freshmen and sophomores are eligible for another four thousand dollars in an unsubsidized student loan, and juniors and seniors are eligible for another five thousand dollars in an unsubsidized student loan. So if a parent's denied one year, then they do have to reapply subsequent years because it's not automatic that that denial is you know, going to carry through for the four years that the student is in college. Gotcha. Beth, thank you so much. I really appreciate uh, you joining me today, and thank you to all of my guests who joined us. Uh, next week, we're going to be talking about some really interesting things, I think. Uh, the first is around determining the value of a college. You know, how this is something we're getting a lot of questions about this year, at this time of the year. You know, which one is the better choice? Um, where am I getting a better value? Which one is more worth our money? Uh, and so we're going to be digging into that one. Uh, and we're also going to be talking about admission to the Ivies, uh, just getting some basic information. It's, a, it's actually a sports conference, but it's something that people really get fixated on. Uh, and there certainly are uh, some different expectations at that high level of selectivity where sometimes you're accepting less than 5% of your applicant pool. So we're going to talk through that. And we're also going to talk about demonstrated interest and how you show colleges who care that you're interested. Not all colleges care, but the ones that do really need to hear that from you. Uh, you can visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting in. There's lots of great information there. Check out our archives. And please come back next week. We're here every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.